the 21st verse in the 31st chapter of the book of the prophet Jeremiah. Set thee up waymarks, make thee high heaps, set thine heart toward the highway, even the way which thou wentest. Turn again, O virgin of Israel, turn again to these thy cities. Now I take that particular verse in particular out of this section. In order to call your attention to the message which is addressed here by this prophet Jeremiah to the children of Israel, he spoke to them, as is obvious, at a time of trouble, a time of declension, a time of unhappiness. He is dealing here with their captivity in Babylon resulting from their sin. And he is addressing to them a message of hope and of cheer, assuring them that there is a way back and that God's purposes with respect to them are still purposes of grace. In other words, it is one of the many messages found in this uh, prophecy in particular, addressed to a backsliding and a consequently miserable and unhappy people. And I call your attention to it this morning in order that I may speak to those who may be in this congregation who up to a measure or in some shape or form are in a like case and condition. I'm thinking particularly, therefore, of those who are unhappy in their Christian life, feeling that things are not right, conscious that they're not being blessed as once they were blessed. And as they have a feeling within them, they should be blessed. Conscious of contradictions, finding themselves in a place in which they cannot sing and they cannot rejoice and are, as I say, thoroughly ill at ease. Now the words that were addressed by the prophet to the children of Israel of old are equally appropriate to any Christian people who may be in such a condition at this present time. Alas, it's a condition which all of us have known at some time or another. There is no Christian who can claim to have lived a life of a dead level, universal enjoyment and rejoicing. Alas, we must all confess to these ups and downs in our Christian life and experience. And here, I say, is a word that comes to all who for any reason whatsoever are feeling discouraged, feeling unhappy, feeling that they're not in the place of blessing and not enjoying the Christian life as they should be. Now, someone may say, but why do you take an Old Testament text to do that? Well, the answer is that the New Testament constantly does this very thing. You notice the quotations in the epistles from these prophets, these things were written, as the Apostle Paul puts it, for our example, our ensamples upon whom the ends of the earth are met. There is nothing that we can read about these children of Israel that does not apply to us. They were God's people as we are God's people. And the laws of the spiritual realm and life remain ever always the same. So we go back to this picturesque way in which the prophet puts it here this morning. Because it seems to me that in putting it in this particular manner, he puts it in a way that we can easily remember, and certain great principles 
will stand out. Now then, the first thing, of course, is the cause of this condition. What is this? Well, this is what the Bible calls backsliding. It's a falling back. Or, if we may use the imagery of our text this morning, it's a wandering from the true pathway. It's being sidetracked somehow or another. It's wandering away from that straight road. The road, as the hymn we've just been singing puts it, that leads us ever always to the land. That's the cause of the trouble. I don't uh, stay with that this morning, but it is in some shape or form a failure to live the Christian life as we know it should be lived and as we at one time have been enabled to do. Now, there are two main things, as I see it, which are taught us here with respect to such a condition. I merely mention the first because I want to concentrate on the second, which is more practical. The first is this. What does God do with us when we are in such a state and condition? And the answer is that he does two things. One is that he chastises us. Let there be no mistake about that. If we wander from God's way, because we are his children, we are certain to be chastised. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he calleth. He chastised these children of Israel. Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised. He invariably does that. We mustn't stay with this. You remember the teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul is teaching those people about the Lord's Supper. And he says, you know, because some of you haven't been examining yourselves and dealing with yourselves for this cause, some are weak, and some are sickly among you, and some have even died. Therefore, he says, let every man examine himself and deal with himself, judge and condemn himself, and put himself right. God, I say, deals with us by means of chastisement, but he doesn't stop at that. There is also instruction. Surely after that I was turned, I repented, and after that I was instructed, I smote upon my thigh. God instructed these children of Israel by sending his prophets to them. He raised a mighty succession of such men, and they were sent to teach, to instruct, to give information, and to give knowledge. And God still does that. That is the whole value of this book. It's a book of instruction, teaching, direction, showing us what is wrong and what we have to do. Well, very well, there are the two things that God does to us at such a time. And, of course, the two things blend together very frequently. The value of the chastisement is the instruction that it brings. It calls attention to the instruction. While things are going well, we become negligent of the instruction. When things go wrong, the very chastisement drives us back. Like recalcitrant children, we are forced by the chastisement to go back to the instruction of the Lord. Very well. But the thing I want to concentrate, I say this morning, is this. The way back to the position of blessing. The way out of the captivity. The way back to the land and to the city of God, where we are meant to be. 
Now that's the thing I say that is shown here so clearly. And there are certain steps which must always be taken. They are quite invariable. This is a large subject, I know, and all I'm anxious to do this morning is to put certain big headings before you, which you can work out for yourselves. They might very well detain us for a number of Sunday mornings, but it is my invariable custom as I resume my ministry thus in the month of September every year to deal with certain big matters these first two Sundays in the month of September. And here we are facing an autumn and a winter under the hand of God and in his good pleasure. And surely there is nothing more important than this. You've Many of you have been away on your holidays and you've come back. Well, are you in the right place? Are you looking forward with joy to living your Christian life during these coming months, during the next year? How do things stand with you? It's a grievous thing that anybody should be in this place of captivity, unhappy, ill at ease, not looking forward to coming to God's house or to private acts of devotion, not looking forward with a thrill of anticipation to the living of the Christian life. Oh, I address such persons. Listen, I say, there is a way back. Hearken unto the instructions of the word and of the prophet of God. Here's the first thing, repentance, repentance. We start with this, we must start with it. Surely after that I was turned, I repented. That was the turning point in the story of the prodigal son, wasn't it? He came to himself. He'd been going away until that point. And things had been going from bad to worse. He came to himself. Oh, that's repentance. That's the beginning of it. And from that moment, everything began to change. Repentance is, I say, inevitable. It's the first great essential. And that is why there is so much teaching concerning it in the Bible, Old Testament and New. There is nothing we need to know more about than repentance. Now, there are certain marks of repentance. And it is with these I want to stop. We often confuse between repentance and remorse. And therefore we must be very clear as to the difference. And it is made very plain and clear for us here. What are the marks of repentance? What are the essential ingredients, if you like, of true repentance? Well, the first is clearly a realization of sin. Consciousness and an active realization that we have sinned against God. You notice the terms which are used by the prophet. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself bemoaning himself. But that's not the only term. Uh, surely, he says, after that I was turned, I repented, and after that I was instructed, I smote my thigh. You see, he feels the thing so deeply, he smites his thigh. We are told of the publican, you remember in our Lord's parable of the publican and the Pharisee that went up to the temple to pray that this publican, who was in an agony of repentance, he smote his breast. There was an intense emotion. He was so conscious of his sin. Well, here it is. I smote my thigh. I smote my breast. And then he adds even to that. I was ashamed. Yea, even confounded. And further, because I did bear the reproach of my youth. 
Now the terms, you see, help us to see that the first essential about repentance is this uh, true and deep awareness of our sin. It isn't just a superficial feeling of un being uncomfortable. It isn't just a vague sense that, oh, well, perhaps I've done something that was wrong. The man who truly repents is a man who sees the folly and the enormity of it all. He hates himself for it. He strikes himself. He, he demands himself. He's really wretched because he's ever been capable of such conduct and such action, such folly, I say, with respect to God. Now, that is the result, of course, of having realized and having seen what he's done. And uh, the teaching of the Bible from beginning to end is this, that if only we really saw what sin is in the sight of God, we'd go and hide ourselves. We'd hate ourselves. We'd abominate ourselves. Well, in various ways, I say, this is the result of a true state of repentance. But it doesn't stop there. I say this morning, I'm only giving you headings. All these things could be dealt with at greater length, but I'm anxious to give a composite picture. The second thing is, the second mark of repentance is that one realizes the utter folly of struggling against God and against his ways and his dealings with us. Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised as a bullock, unaccustomed to the yoke. Now there's the picture. And a very wonderful picture it is. You see, it's a picture from that old agricultural life which these people lived. There was a bullock with the yoke upon him, and there were spikes in that yoke. And if he didn't draw in the right way, he'd push himself against these girds, these spikes. And he'd hurt himself, and blood would come forth. And if he struggled, instead of drawing steadily forwards, he'd be girding himself more and more. That's the picture that the, uh, that the prophet uses here. He says, I was chastised as a bullock, unaccustomed to the yoke. A bullock that had been newly caught and that was newly tamed, and that was being trained. It's exactly the same with a horse. If you've ever seen a horse being tamed and trained, you'll see the same thing. He prances, he kicks, he wastes his energy, and there he is in a lather of sweat. Why? Well, simply because he's struggling against the discipline and against the train. And that is the trouble with this bullock unaccustomed to the yoke. He's not submitting to it. He's not reconciling himself to the fact that his master and owner have put him in this position for a particular end and object. And there he is, goading himself because he is not behaving as he is meant to do. And oh, we all know something about this, don't we? When the hand of God is upon you, but you want to do something else, and you struggle against it, and the more you struggle, the more painful it is, and the more you're hurt, and the more sorry you are for yourself. Well, says this man, it's nothing. You're just behaving like a bullock and accustomed to the yoke. I have said already that when we sin against God, who are his people, or depart from his way, as certainly as we do so, we shall be chastised. And if you struggle against the chastisement, and try and fight it, and try and shake it off, and in a spirit of bravado, go on and try to defy God. 
There's only one result. You'll hurt yourself more and more. And repentance means this partly. That a man comes to see the unutterable folly of continuing in a struggle against God and against his most holy way. It's a mad thing to do. You struggle against God and you'll get more chastisement. For if God has set his heart upon you and has called you, he is bringing you to perfection. And the more you struggle against him, the more you will be held in and disciplined and held down. And the more you'll hurt yourself. So it's of the very essence of repentance to realize that. And to cease from struggling. And to recognize that God's chastisements are in love. That he's doing it all for your good. That it is because he does love you that he's treating you thus. So instead of struggling and objecting and fighting against it, you stop. And you say, it was good for me that I have been afflicted. Because before I was afflicted, I went astray. Instead of struggling against it, you say, I thank God for this. This is God's way of bringing me to my senses. This is God's way of awakening me to the ultimate danger to my soul. You cease to be like this bullock, unaccustomed to the yoke, and you submit to the chastisement and the teaching of God. But wait, it hasn't stopped even there. There is yet another step in this process of repentance and in this indication of a state of repentance. And it's a very important one. It is the realization of the depth of sin. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean this. Listen to the the words. In verse 18, I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself thus. Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised as a bullock and accustomed to the yoke. What a fool I am. Yes, I'm not only a fool, I'm worse. Turn thou me. And I shall be turned. What's he mean? Well, he's saying in a sense, I can't even turn myself. This principle of evil and of sin that is within me, it's so deep, it's so much a part of my very nature. I'm in such a condition that I can't even turn myself. I see now how wrong I am and how foolish I've been. And I want to be back, but I can't even turn myself back. I seem to lack the strength even to turn back to where I ought to be. Turn thou me to me, this is a most important point. I'm not happy about repentance in myself or anybody else until this element is included in it. A man is not truly conscious of his sin and of his final hopelessness. Until he realizes that he, in a final sense, can do nothing about it. And simply cries out to God, turn thou me. The depth of sin. The way in which it pollutes every faculty and every part of our being. Spoils and vitiates all our best efforts. You know, a man, I say, has not realized the depth of sin and his own hopelessness. He's not truly in a state of repentance until he feels that he's finally hopeless just on his back, as it were, cries out to God, Turn me! You must even turn me back to yourself. Turn us, and we shall be turned. Turn me, and I shall be turned. 
Do you realize your need of the Spirit of God? Do you know this feeling that you can't even stir or move yourself? You know you can't take up the Christian life truly as you can take up a secular program. It isn't like a man giving up one person taking another, or a man deciding to go in for something. You and I can do that, but you know you can't do that in the, in the Christian and in the spiritual life. No man really knows himself as a sinner until he realizes this final paralysis produced by sin, his utter hopelessness, and that his only hope lies in the fact that God can turn him, and he cries out to him and asks him to do so. Turn thou me and I shall be turned. In other words, the man is saying to himself, oh, I've tried to turn, but it hasn't been a true turning. I've only been turning my eyes. I haven't turned my whole body. The whole man hasn't been turned. I've been making my little efforts, but they don't lead to anything. Turn thou me, and then I shall be turned, and I want that. Oh, God, take hold of me. Lift me up. Take me out. Take me back. Turn thou me. That's repentance. When a man realizes the plague of his own heart and the depth of sin within him to that extent that he feels that final hopelessness about himself and all his efforts and realizes that nothing but the spirit of the living God is adequate to his condition. And then the last element in repentance is this, that we thus cast ourselves utterly into the hands of God. Turn thou me, and I shall be turned, for thou art the Lord my God. I want nothing else beside thee. Here I am. Go with me as thou dost will, and when, and where. Thy way, not mine, O Lord, however hard it be. That's it. Thy way. Not mine. Why? Well, because thou art the Lord my God. I've been in trouble because I've chosen my own path. Because I've exercised my own will. Because I've pitted myself at some point or another against God and his will for me. And now I've seen it all. So I come back and I say, thou art the Lord my God. And there is no other and I desire no other. I acknowledge God's right to me to do with me as he wills and as he pleases. I have only one concern, and that is that I be in the hands of God and at the center of his will. Whatever it may involve for me, the lordship, the sovereignty of God, instead of fighting against it like a bullock and accustomed to the yoke. Oh, I not only submit to it, I rejoice in it. I put myself completely and unreservedly in his hands. And I say again from the very depth of my being, Thy way, not mine, O Lord, however hard it be, choose thou the path for me. Choose thou my comforts, or the lack of comforts, my friends, my everything, my prosperity, my adversity, whatever it is that thou seest is best for me. Do it. Thou art. The Lord my God. And my only desire is to be in the place where thou wouldest have me be. That's repentance, my dear friend, in its elements. 
Are you there? Are you there? If you're not there, you'll continue to be miserable. I don't care what you do. You'll never know peace, no rest, no joy until you come back there in the center. Well, let me go on and put that in the second principles. The second great thing that we are told here is this. We must repent. Secondly, we must turn again and seek the highway. Set thee up waymarks. Make thee high heaps. Set thine heart toward the highway. Even the way which thou wentest. Turn again, O virgin of Israel. Turn again to these thy cities. Have you noticed the apparent contradiction? Here is Israel turning to God and saying, Turn me. And God replies, You turn. Turn me, because I can't turn myself. And then God comes God's command. Turn again, O virgin of Israel. Turn again to these thy cities. There's no contradiction, of course. Because the moment we have realized our complete inability and incompetence and have uttered that cry of agony from the depth of our soul to God, asking him to turn us, the moment God begins to act, we are capable. So he rightly says, turn again. He gives the ability. The moment you cry to him, you've got the ability. It was even in the cry. In other words, for me not to stay with this this morning, this is, of course, exactly the same point as you have in Philippians chapter 2 in verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for because it is God that worketh in you. You can work out because God's working in you. It's the same thing. Turn us, you turn, and it's possible now. Well, very well, what have we got to do? Well, his word is this, set thine heart toward the highway. Here it is. Here's the thing that is essential. And oh, how I like this term. I trust you all do. Set thine heart toward the highway. What a wonderful road it is. How beautiful. How noble. How straight. There's not a road like it. It stands alone. The highway. There's only one. Everything else is a subsidiary road. It's a sort of by road, a bypass. There's only one highway. Set thine heart toward the highway. There it is, going from man to God, from earth to heaven, from hell to heaven. The highway, this magnificent, this spacious, this straight and direct road of God. All our troubles are ultimately due to the fact that we wander away from this. And therefore the one great essential always is to come back to this. What do I do, says someone? Well, let me just look at the terms that are used by the prophet. Set thine heart toward the highway. What's this mean? What is this highway? Oh, I can tell you the things that are most true about that, the things that characterize the man who's on the highway. The first great thing is, as I've been saying, to live to the glory of God. It's God's road. And the glory of God is on that highway. And when you're on the highway, you are a man who is living to the glory of God. 
The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And if you're on the highway, you're doing that. That's your great concern. That's your central interest. Above and before everything else, you say, I am here to glorify God. And everything else must be subsidiary to that and subservient to that great end. What else is a characteristic? Well, we can put it like this. It is the way the master went. Should not the servant tread it still? The Son of God was once in this world, and how did he travel through it? Well, he was always on the highway. He never left it. He never deviated for a second. He never even glanced. He walked at the center of the highway. So what does it mean to set your heart toward the highway and to walk along the highway? Well, it means to live as the Lord Jesus Christ lived when he was here. As he is, so are we in this world. If any man would be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That means being on the highway. Peter tells the people to whom he was writing that they should follow in his steps, who did no wrong. Neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he threatened, he suffered not, but committed himself to him who judgeth righteously. That's the way. We've got the portrayal. You've simply got to read your four Gospels. You'll see how he walked. Read your Gospels. That's walking along the highway. Watch him. Watch him. Keep your eye on him. Follow him. And as you're doing so, you're walking along the highway. But then you remember there is a very wonderful description given of this very highway by another prophet, the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 35 verse 8. And on highway shall be there and away, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those the wayfaring men, though fools, shall not err therein. That's the characteristic of this way, of course. A life lived to the glory of God, a life lived as the Lord Jesus Christ lived, is a life of holiness. And there shall be a highway and a way. And it shall be called the way of holiness. There are no unclean things here. This isn't a matter of great intellectual or philosophical understanding. The wayfaring man, though a fool, shall not err therein. Oh, no, no, it's just this one great matter of desiring to live for the glory of God and excluding everything that's incompatible with that, avoiding it, hating it, having nothing to do with it. The unclean shall not walk therein. Set your heart toward the highway. Are you on this highway, my dear friend? Have you seen its charm, its beauty, its glory? I say again, read the Gospels, and there you'll have a glimpse of some of the sights that you'll see along this road. There will be glorious things there. Look at them, I say. Look at him especially, who came from heaven and walked along the road. Follow him. The way, the highway, the way of holiness, the way to God. Seek it. That's the first thing. But then he adds another subsidiary instruction, which is this. We must also see how uh, 
we went wrong and where we went wrong. Having set your heart toward the highway, there you are, you see, still in your captivity and misery. Now the first thing you do is set your heart toward the highway. Well, now then, how do you get back there? Well, one thing he says is this, set thine heart toward the highway, even the way which thou wentest. And this is very instructive and important from the practical aspect. How did you ever arrive where you are? You were on that road, on the highway, but now you're here. Well, now, how did you ever go wrong? It's a very important question, that. A part of the secret of this return is that we indulge in what is called self-examination. The thing that has always characterized the saints of God, the thing that we've almost forgotten entirely in this glib and superficial age. Self-examination. Where did I go wrong? How did I become sidetracked? Where did I make that false move? What was it that landed me here? Why am I not enjoying the sense of the presence of God? Why am I not aware of the endearments of my blessed Savior? Why isn't my heart ravished in his presence? Why am I not experiencing the comforts and the consolations of the scriptures and the joy of Christian living? Why am I as I am? Why am I miserable and unhappy and ill at ease and grumbling and complaining against God and people and everything seems against me and I'm having a hard time? Why am I like that bullock that's unaccustomed to the yoke? What's the matter? Where did I go wrong? How have I ever arrived here? The moment you can answer that question, it won't take you long to get back. You've got to retrace your steps. It may be very painful, but you know it's the way back. It's the way that the prodigal went. He had to go back the way he'd left home. It, there were senses in which it was humiliating him, but it doesn't matter. There's nothing worse than this. I must go back, he says, and say to my father, why, even his hired servants are in a better case than I am. I'll go back. I'll go home. And he went home. So if you find yourself in this unhappy and dejected and miserable state, I exhort you, examine yourself. Where did you go wrong? I wonder whether your trouble has been mainly intellectual. I wonder whether you've become so theoretical in your whole approach to the Christian life and have made it entirely a matter of intellect and of reading and argument and disputation. Because if you have, it's not surprising that you are where you are. You begin to neglect the life of your heart and of your will, you'll soon find yourself in that captivity. You can be led astray by intellect only. Or I wonder, is it that you've been lusting after other things? Your heart has been enticed and attracted by something else. You were walking along the road, and instead of keeping your eye on the one who was walking ahead of you, you began to look round, and there you saw something off the road that seemed very attractive. You lusted after it, as these children of Israel constantly did. And you turned aside. You said, I'm not going to be there long. I'm coming back. I'm only having a taste. I'll soon be back. But you're not back. You've gone further and further and further. And you're now in the field with the swine and the husks. Is our heart lusting after something else, I wonder? Worldly success or pump? Money, wealth, house, personal appearance? All the things to which the world attaches such significance. Have they been creeping in? Have they stolen our heart and our heart's affection? And are we thus off the road? Or has it been some failure, I say, in the matter of the will?
a failure to continue, a failure to be steadfast, slackness in the various things which God has appointed for the good of the soul, things which are essential to walking along the highway. Oh, I just leave my headings with you, but examine yourself, my dear friend. If you're there, it's one or the other of these. It's either your mind, it's your heart, or it's your will. It may be all of them together. But you know, you've no right to be there. You're lacking balance somewhere. This isn't purely intellect and only intellect. It includes it, but it includes the others. It isn't only heart and feeling, it isn't only will. The man who's at the center of the way and on the highway is a man whose mind and heart and will are fully engaged. Examine yourself and then set you up, he says, waymarks, make the high heaps. Let there be no mistake about this, he says. You've got to be careful, you know. If you want to get back to the highway, well now, put up some landmarks, put up some heaps of stone, so that you'll be certain that you're traveling on the direct way back. What's he talking about? Well, here again we could keep uh, for you for some morning after morning, here are some of the heaps and some of the marks, Bible reading. Put this heap down first. Go straight back to this. Wherever you are, I don't care. Come straight back to this. Here's the first heap. Here's the first way mark. Here's God's book for you, a soul. Here's the manual of instruction. Here is God speaking to you. Come back to this. And whatever else you may do or not do, read this, devour it, meditate upon it, pray upon it. Know this. Get back to the truth of God and keep at it regularly and daily. There's no substitute for that. What else? Prayer, of course. Communion with God. Drawing the water of salvation out of the well. Spending time in the presence of God. Seeking his face. Making known your petitions. Praising him. The greatest saints the world has ever known. The men who've told us most about the highway have been men who've spent much time in prayer. As well as Bible reading. Then I add again meditation. Oh, turning to the world and saying that they must be silent. Speak, I pray thee, gentle Jesus. Oh, how passing sweet thy word. All the world's distracting vices, all its enticing tones of ill, at thine accents mild, melodious, are subdued, and all is still. Shout to them to be silent, that you may listen to God. Meditate. Then go on with this self-examination. Go on with your assembling of yourselves together in the house of God for prayer and listening to preaching and everything that can build you up and establish you in the faith, fellowship with other Christians. Set up your waymarks. Put up your heaps of stone. These are the ways back to the highway of God. My time has gone, but let me urge this upon you. Make a thorough work of it. Set your heart toward the highway. Not only your mind occasionally. Let this be the desire of your heart. Let it be the deepest thing within you. Let the center of your personality be involved. Come back, I say, and do a thorough work. Do the very things that the Apostle Paul described in that second epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 7, verse 11. Behold, he says, this selfsame thing that you sorrowed after a godly sort. What carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. 
Don't look at anything else until you put this right. Do a thorough work. Do it with the whole of your being. And then do it at once. Listen to him in verse 22. How long wilt thou go about, O thou backsliding daughter? Which can be translated like this. How long will you vacillate, O thou backsliding daughter? Or indeed you can look at it like this. Whenever a man finds himself in this position that we are dealing with, there will be all sorts of remedies and ways out offered to him. The moment you arrive there, ah, you become an obvious prey and victim for the cults. They say, of course you're unhappy. And it's quite simple, all you've got to do is this. And they've got a patent remedy which will give you happiness in a flash. You don't have to repent and you don't have to go through this process I've been describing. They've got a shortcut to holiness. They've got a shortcut to happiness. A shortcut to health. Shortcut to everything. Don't listen to them. How long will thou go about, O thou backsliding daughter? Don't listen to these peddlers who will come along and offer their goods to you. The world is full of them at the present time. And Christian people who are unhappy are being offered them. Shortcuts to all that they need. But they never get there. Why? Because, as I've said, there's only one highway. One only. It is the way that is described and taught in this book. It is the way that the Son of God himself trod and followed. Refuse. Every other offer regard it as the enticement of Satan. Repent. Set up the high, these landmarks and the stones. Come back onto the highway, the road that leads you to the land. And I thank God that as I close, I've got a word of encouragement for you. Listen to verse 20. Is Ephraim, my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? It's God speaking. He is looking at Ephraim as a bullock and accustomed to the yoke, in the wrong place, miserable, unhappy, a disgrace and a shame. Is Ephraim, my dear son, is he a pleasant child? I once said that he was. Is he still? Listen. For since I spake against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Yes, he's still my son, my dear son, a pleasant child. He's in the wrong place. He's in his rags. He's in the far country. He's a prodigal. He's with the swine and the husks. But he's my son still. Whatever the world may say about him, he's my dear son. He's a pleasant child. Since I speak against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore my bowels are troubled for him. I've spoken severely. I've chastised him. I've punished him. But I can't sleep at night. My bowels are yearning for him. I'm troubled. I'm unhappy. I will surely have mercy upon him, saith the Lord. Yes. While he, the prodigal, was yet a long way off. His father saw him and ran to meet him and embraced and showered and encompassed him with his love and broke across his expression of repentance and called for the ring and the robe and the fatted calf. Ephraim, though he is where he is and in disgrace, is still, my dear son, 
is still my pleasant child. Since I spake against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore my bowels are troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, saith the Lord. And my dear friend, unhappy, miserable, backsliding, defeated Christian. It is my privilege to tell you that God feels like that towards you. His very chastisement, if you but realize that it, is a mark of his love. His heart is yearning after you. Turn unto God, and God will turn unto you. Set your heart toward the highway. Begin to move in that direction. You'll find him, may I say it with reverence, running down the road to meet you. And he'll enfold you again in the heart in the hands of his love, and shower his blessings upon you. The past shall be forgotten, a present joy be given to you. He'll enable you even to forget your backslidings. And shining upon you, and you walking in the sunshine of his face, you will again see your leader and your Lord, and you will follow him. And he will reveal to you glory after glory, and you will be changed from glory unto glory, until at the end in heaven you shall see his face and cast your crown before him, lost in wonder, love, and praise. Set your heart toward the highway. Turn you again. You're away from home. Come back to the city of God. Come back to your Father who is waiting to receive you. And again experience the joy of home and of his house. Amen. The closing hymn is hymn number 469, 469. Thou hidden love of God whose height, whose depth and fathom no man knows. 469.
unto him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. And may grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us. Now, throughout the remainder of this our short, uncertain, earthly life and pilgrimage, and until we shall arrive safely in the city of God. Amen.